Hey, hey, welcome to another installment of Too Much to Watch. In today's episode, we will be diving into episode three of House of the Dragon. I'll do a review slash recap, and there's a lot to dive into with that. We kind of got our first big action spectacle set piece, which bookended the episode with tons of political intrigue and symbolism and visions in between. But first, I have to dive into the fact that we have two blockbuster fantasy TV series on simultaneously. And this is just quite a moment in premium TV history that we have this level of investment. <laughs> it has to be pointed out that the, the box office, the film box office, the movies where people would go out and pay 10 bucks or so for probably more at this point for a movie is just so, so dead right now. There are no movies out. There are some smaller films, but most of the box office traction that's happening right now is still from tentpole movies that released months ago. Like Top Gun, Jurassic World. I think they're doing a re-release of Avatar soon. And this just might be the state of things going forward. All of the money spent by studios has been invested in TV in the month of August, which used to still be kind of a huge month for movies. It, it's a stunning turn of events here. And um, I think that going forward, movies will just be kind of more of a sparing thing that people go out to see. It'll be looked at more as an event that people need to be a part of rather than something that's just kind of, you go out and you see a movie and that's it. And that's how, that's how we primarily consume content. It's so easy. It's a lot to ask someone to go out and spend a lot of money. And especially if you have someone else with you, say you have kids or you have a significant other, uh, you have a bunch of friends, you all have to, hobble money together. You have to drive there. You have to get there. And then you have to hope that the studio, that the studio, the movie theater is in good condition. And then if you want to eat or go to the bathroom, uh, if you want, if you want to eat, it's generally pretty expensive because that's how theaters make a lot of their money. And if you want to go to the bathroom and say, hold on, hold on. Like this is a long movie. This is like, we're an hour into this. I need to use the bathroom. Can we just press pause real quick? You can't do that. So there's a lot of the conveniences. However, it still is a very nice experience because you get like the, still the best sound, the biggest picture. But yeah, this is where we are. The biggest investments by studios right now for this month are on TV, on the small screen. With that being said, I do want to just give a little bit of a initial reaction, my initial reaction to The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I've watched the first two episodes now. I had a little trip that I took for Labor Day weekend and was able to download the episodes and just kind of tune in on the plane. Probably not the best way to watch it. And I realized that quickly after finishing up maybe the first 10 minutes of the episode because, wow, you could see the money translate to the screen here. There was some chatter early on when people saw some of the trailers, I think during the Super Bowl, where it's like, oh, I don't know. Does this even look that good? It's like, listen, the editing isn't done yet. This needs to be polished up. The effects need to be polished up. And 
clearly that has happened because wow, the show looks amazing. It's one of the best looking TV shows I have ever seen. Um, it's really good. And uh, the acting in, is top notch as well from the actor that portrays Galadriel, who seems to be kind of the main character we're following here, to uh, El- Lord Elrond, who was the same actor, by the way, that portrayed a young Ned Stark on Game of Thrones. So this guy just became, <laughs> I-, I don't know, I guess he's getting typecast as a fantasy actor. Hopefully he's able to uh, expand his horizons beyond that. Um, we have uh, some other elven characters in the Southlands that are watching over the uh, kind of the the humans that had sided with Morgoth. Then we have the Harfoots as well, who are kind of like the de facto hobbits. The, f- the first thing I want to say is, wow, does this cover a lot, a lot, a lot of content. <laughs> there is so much to bite off, and that's really hard. I think when you uh, show this big of a world early on, it's kind of like Game of Thrones, the first episode. There's so much uh, jargon that's being thrown out towards you. There's so many names. There's so much history. There's so much lore. There's so many locations that it it, it could be a bit overwhelming. So uh, maybe that was the reason that they decided to have a relatively slower first episode. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's kind of the complaint is that the first episode's kind of slow. However, things really start to pick up a little bit in the second episode. Personally, I found the first episode, it was a slower pace, but I, I still was pretty into it, particularly by the ending. I found it pretty fascinating that just the, the sheer visuals kind of could lock me in. And there were some action set pieces early on too. So it wasn't like like glacially paced and just full of dialogue that George Lucas had directed, like the Phantom Menace. There is some humor. There are people acting like human beings here and just kind of joking with each other and having expression in their voice and feeling emotions and demoting and letting actors act. (laughs) That's a huge relief. Um, Because there is another fantasy show that Amazon has produced called The Wheel of Time, which is also based on a large series of fantasy novels, that while visually and from a production standpoint, the quality was there, I think some of the writing and the acting felt a little bit stale, despite, despite the fact that they had Rosamund Pike as the star of the show, who is a fantastic actress, and her acting was good. Some of the younger actors, it, it wasn't quite there. Some of the dialogue just felt a little stiff. And the show was just so self-serious. And that, that it could be hard for people to buy in to a fantasy show if you're not just like winking and not into the audience. We get it. This is all a little bit ridiculous. And just bear with us here. We'll give you some jokes every now and then. We'll draw you into the characters and then you're going to care a lot more and maybe we can have some amazing set pieces or moments of peril and then all of a sudden you're you're going to treat this a lot more seriously, which is kind of like what the Marvel Cinematic Universe does. However, that is not the case for The Rings of Power. It feels just like the right tone that Peter Jackson had set out to achieve. And... Uh, that's a hard achievement. That's that's a hard thing to uh, accomplish because not only was this one of the most hyped shows in recent memory, it also, you know, obviously, the and, and the cost 
got a lot of press too, $250 million just to achieve the rights for Amazon to achieve the rights of it. And another 250 million, a quarter of a billion just for the production budget of the first eight episode season. There's a lot of skin in the game here. With great amounts of money comes a higher level of scrutiny. Um, so there's that as well. But I think that these first-time showrunners have, uh, have with, the, with the help of J.A. Bayona and probably some other executive producers, have they have something going here. I don't think that this is the best show on TV, but it's far from a disaster, and it has my attention, and, and it's something to build off of. This show is very, especially with the first episode, this show is very much playing the long game. Which is a good thing. Uh, you know, I think it's projected that it will be about five seasons. Um, I'm not sure if that's set in stone or not. I think the for Amazon to get the rights, they needed to produce at least five seasons, if I'm not mistaken. You know, streamers always want more content. HBO famously wanted Game of Thrones to go on for 10 seasons, and it did not. Amazon, if it's good and it's got the eyeballs, it's got the attention, maybe it's got some, you know, some award consideration. Conventional wisdom would suggest that Amazon would want this to go on longer. Another thing that I want to point out with this show is that it didn't really follow the typical model of how a show, at least most of the shows that I know of, like this, have come to light. A lot of times, there is a showrunner or a creator that pitches a show idea to a studio and then the show w agrees to pick it up and foot the bill or pass on it. And then maybe they'll go on to another studio and try to get it picked up. That wasn't the case here. Instead, Amazon had planned to make a Lord of the Rings show from the get-go by purchasing the rights and then finding someone to run the show. And so not only are they having auditions for the roles and uh, maybe like an audition for the director, but they're having auditions for the showrunners themselves. And I read an article that they rent through like dozens and dozens of people. And uh, I think there were some pretty premium, some big names that actually had pitched some ideas, but they decided on some relative newcomers. In fact, I wouldn't even call them newcomers. I would call these guys complete and utter like rookies have a writing credit for an upcoming remake of flash gordon but goodness that is not much at all to run what is ultimately going to be at least from a financial perspective one of the most ambitious tv projects ever that's a big gamble. I mean, it's hard to say. I don't want to kind of insult these guys because clearly these guys had an amazing idea and they gave an amazing pitch, but it is, it is a gamble. It's hard to say anything else. Um, I assume they'll have excellent help along the way. And I suppose that Amazon was inspired by the fact that HBO decided on relative newcomers, David Benioff and Dan Wise when they picked up Game of Thrones. However, those guys had those guys had a little bit more on it. I think that David Benioff in particular had writing credits on the movie X-Men Origins Wolverine and I think the Kite Runner movie. That's more that it's not it's not much, but that's more than what you could say for these guys. Of course, he had killed Galadriel's brother 
And so Galadriel still has a thirst for vengeance here. It is expected that elves who are immortal go on to live in, it's like almost like another dimension. They have to enter a portal to go live in this world of Valinor, which is like the, it's almost like the elven version of Valhalla or something like that. It's not quite heaven because it's not like an afterlife because they're immortal, but it's like this, it's like this place that's considered a paradise for elves. Another thing that I do want to point out is that this, uh, this is, they're, they're going off of the appendices here. They are not, there's no books. So really with J.R.R. Tolkien, he just kind of painted out the broad strokes for this story. So the writers, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and I think they have some other writers that are, you know, helping out on this as well, writing episodes, are really fleshing this out in terms of character building and relationships and all the connective tissue. They know the broad strokes, so they, they truly have their work cut out for them. But it looks like they're pretty successful so far, and I have to say, I'm excited for what we have going forward. They have something to build off of here, and I like the fact that they released the first two episodes, and they knew that that was probably important because the first episode is slow, and the second episode really starts... That's where things really start to pick up. And so they really wanted to hook people. And so now they release an episode every Friday and we have that to look forward to. So I I think going forward, I will be doing kind of like, I don't know if I'll be doing an episode to episode recap slash review, but maybe like every couple of episodes I'll be diving in and, you know, sharing what I think here. But another thing that I'd really want to point out is that this story is huge from the start, unlike House of the Dragon, which is very contained, um, this story, we even have these transitions where they transition between scenes and different parts of the world where it kind of like, it zooms out to a map of Middle Earth and it will kind of show where we're going. It's pretty cool. It's a very good technique, but it's a lot to digest. So I, I do look forward to not only future episodes, but becoming more familiar with this character, with these characters and becoming more engrossed in this world. And another thing that I can confirm is that this show does feel very great. Again, it captures the tone set by Peter Jackson, where while this certainly is more age appropriate for people of all ages, it's not like a little kid show. It doesn't have like the tone of like a like a Disney Plus action series, and not every Disney Plus show is uh, immature, but some of them, some of them are. Like maybe I guess, like the tone of National Treasure, for that matter. Maybe that's a good way to put it. The tone of National Treasure, which is a movie where a lot of perilous things happen, but it managed to secure a PG rating. There's not too much in the way of adult themes on this show, but there is violence and. Uh, I even think that the Lord of the Rings movies, particularly the return of the King pushed that PG 13 rating with, in terms of violence about as far as it could go. So that's good because I, I think ultimately if you had a more childish tone, I think you could have turned off some of the more adult viewers who like the house of the dragon. I'm not turned off by that. So I, I look forward to that as well. Anyway, that's my, initial reaction so far to the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I'll be diving into it a little bit more in future episodes of Too Much to Watch. But for now, let's dive into episode three, 
of House of the Dragon. Okay, so let's dive in. Episode three of House of the Dragon is titled Second of His Name, and it was directed by Greg Yatanis. I did not, I have not heard of Greg Yatanis before, but this guy is a veteran TV director. He is, this was an interesting uh, episode. We got our first big set piece. They advertised dragons. It's called House of the Dragon. A lot of the trailers showed dragons breathing fire. Uh, and we finally got that in this episode. Uh, when we kick things off, we get finally have drawn our attention to the Stepstones and the Triarchy, led by the Crab Feeder, is revealed in this episode. And he is a bastard prince of some kind. It, it shares his name. It does not share much about his... I'm not sure if this guy has it. He probably does have a chip on his shoulder, in a way. And he it shows him right away torturing a prisoner that's part of the that is on the opposing side you know it shows him hammering his hand to driftwood and then putting crabs on him uh kind of just the crab feeder doing his thing here another interesting thing about the crab feeder is that he seems to be wearing a mask that the it's the same style of mask that the sons of the harpy wore in uh, game of thrones and if, if you don't remember the sons of the harpy were the slavers in Essos who had kind of staged an uprising against Daenerys who had freed all the slaves and they were, and that the slavers were affected by it economically and had thought that this culturally was a way of life. And this is the way we had always done things. So we're going to put on a bunch of masks and grab a bunch of daggers and go to war against Daenerys and the unsullied. Back to the episode. Then finally, <laughs> we actually get a little bit of humor here, which is nice because I, I had had a concern two episodes in that this show, there's a lot of politicking going on. There's a lot of slow burn. There's a lot of people just sitting around kind of upset about how they have, while they, <laughs> with their first world problems about how they have duties and they have to, kind of worry about who's going to marry who and what is appropriate and what is not and the role of a woman versus the role of a man in this world. Finally, we get a little bit of humor, albeit dark humor, where this guy is like cursing at the crab feeder, who's crab feeder's prisoner, and then is say, and then once Damon shows up on his dragon, Syraxes, uh, he's like, oh, Damon, you've come to save me. And then Damon, the, the dragon's foot just stomps on the guy. <laughs> uh, such as the dark humor of House of the Dragon, and they've kind of maintained that tone from Game of Thrones. So good, good continuity there by uh, the director, Gabe Fonseca. So we get to see Syraxes in action, burning all of soldiers on the ground of, on the stepstones on this beach. But then this, this is the problem that they face the whole time. The soldiers retreat into the caves along with the crab feeder, and he doesn't come out. And this this whole thing has gone on for apparently years, as there is a time jump ahead. We'll get into that in a little bit later. But uh, so this is why the war is just dragging on. And I think this alliance of Corlys Valerion and Daemon Targaryen has used a lot of resources, and there's been some casualties, and it just has not gone well. And you see kind of the 
the problem that Damon gets in, even though he's able to just pull up a dragon, launch it on the ground. And this is the, the tactical advantage, not even tactical advantage, but the, from an ammunition standpoint, they have this nuclear weapon, this Harrier jet of a dragon that can just go on the ground, stomp on enemies and just breathe fire over everyone. However, if, the triarchy has this advantage of geography where they can go into the caves. You can have all the dragons you want. It won't help you out. Um, so we see the problem there and the drag, and then also the archers who have the high ground shoot at the dragon and Damon is forced to escape. The war rages on. We cut over to another time jump a couple of uh, years ahead. And we have another party to celebrate the Ceres and Allison Hightower's new son named Aegon, who would be second of his name if he was uh, the one to take up the mantle as the successor, the heir to Viserys after Viserys passes. Oh man, there is a lot looming in this party. There's a lot of slow burn here. Uh, You have, of course, it always seems like Otto Hightower is just kind of looming, observing, but never communicating all that much. He communicates a little bit here with uh, another Hightower about the details of this kid. But of course, he's always probably thinking about his next move. One thing I kind of want to point out about this is when we did get the idea that kind of the mic drop moment at the end of episode two, that Viserys would be marrying Alison Hightower, I suppose the way that was written, that was written for a bit of surprise and shock. So that was the kind of the narrative, the choice to to not show a conversation that Viserys could have had with Rhaenyra beforehand saying like, listen, I know she's your best friend, but I love this woman and I, or this woman, at least I have a connection with this woman and I want to marry her. So, you know, Viserys, again, just a bad decision maker, (laughs) not really tuned into things. This guy is just completely a mess with being King. He's consumed with maintaining the peace of the law of Jaehaerys, previous king's reign it's just taken a toll on him not only physically because he has ailments but also mentally this guy is just a mess and he's not thinking clearly he also could have had a conversation of course with corliss valerian as well i guess yeah but again i guess the the writing decision there but we we don't see a wedding either and it would have been i don't know i've heard on a couple other podcasts they mentioned that it would have been nice to see rhaenyra's face at that wedding I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But we do see uh, an upset Rhaenyra sitting beside the Weirwood asking a song to be constantly uh, played for her. She's upset. She's removed from all of this. She just doesn't feel involved at all. She doesn't feel fully, unconditionally loved in the eyes of her father. Pretty good stuff all around here. But again, I I guess maybe I was a little bit fatigued watching some of this. While it's all good stuff, it's like, man, we have spent so much time in in King's Landing. We just need to escape. So that it was a breath of fresh air when we started off on the Stepstones finally. But luckily, this episode finally ventures outside of King's Landing, and they decide to go on a royal hunt. There's more to it than that, but yes, 
Viserys and Rhaenyra and Alicent and everyone, all all our people that are hanging out, all our peeps that are hanging out in King's Landing decide to go on a royal hunt. And there's more characters that we'll become acquainted with here as well. Robert Baratheon went on and it was literally like three people. And uh, it was the, oh, the Lannister. I forget his name. I think it was Cersei's nephew who was like his uh, Robert's squire and was getting him intentionally drunk. And maybe there were some other things there. And then eventually he gets he gets staked by a boar's tusk and gets uh, mortally wounded. But like the hunt apparently in the book was like way different. There were way more people. And it's just like if a, a king of like the king's landing, if he actually went on a royal hunt, it just wouldn't have it would not have looked like that. And there were clearly budget constraints at that time. Not this time. There's tents set up and uh, there's like roasts going on. There's a humongous bonfire. The whole thing just looks really, really great. Not skipping over the battles either. You know, we got a big battle in, in the very first part of this episode. So that's good too. We get to this place and then uh, we're finally, we're introduced to Jason Lannister. <laughs> we're I, I, I think people were probably including myself, was wondering when a member of the Lannister House Lannister would show up. And we get we get it by the third episode, Jason Lannister, with a very normal name, by the way, like just like a like a normal, like just everyday name, just Jason, not Tyrion, Tywin, Cersei, just Jason. And comes up to speak to Rhaenyra, kind of spitting some game at her. She clearly doesn't want to be courted by this guy who just talks about buying her a dragon pit and you know flexing his money and she's like whatever and just kind of says that it, it doesn't even take the wine the dornish wine and just rejects him kind of a good scene actually had not been aware of this on another but i heard it on another podcast is that this actor jefferson hall i believe his name is is the let me actually just check that yes Jefferson Hall is the same actor that played Sir Hugh of the Vale in season one of Game of Thrones. Oh, this guy has been riding on the uh, the world of ice and fire well, and I, I would never have known. Sir, for those of you who don't know, Sir Hugh of the Vale was a guy that was in the joust and was like this young kid at the time. And Ned Stark was like, well, how is that guy competing? He He's barely been like a warrior at all. And he got like annihilated. He ends up dying brutally at the hand. Oh, I think he jousts the, against the mountain, like wood chips, like splintering into his neck. It's a brutal death. Um, but interesting, very interesting stuff. Uh, and, and by the way, all another thing is that Jason Lannister has a twin, Tylen Lannister, who's seen at the party beforehand for uh, Aegon Targa Targaryen. Uh, and he's the guy who is now the master of ships, who is warning Viserys about, hey, there's still this war going on the Stepstones. Maybe you should send some help for Daemon. And he's like, and Viserys just blows it off, which is maybe a bit naive. So we have a lot to be introduced to here. And then Rhaenyra comes in and sees a bunch of people gossiping, introduced some, some, other, some other houses here, how strong and... This episode was really big on symbolism and potentially foreshadowing. Uh, and that's something that uh, we'll need to dive into. The whole point of this hunt is that before become king and the Targaryen dynasty had taken over Westeros, it was common for the idea of the king to hunt and uh kill a white heart which is a a stag that has white fur 
And so they're going to look for this white heart and, uh, and kill it with a, a huge crew of people, by the way. Again, Viserys likes playing the part, wants to maintain the peace. So this is kind of more nothing than just him kind of uh, going through the motions here with this. This was a very Viserys-centric episode, by the way. We just see the absolute kind of anguish that this guy is in. And it's a great performance by Patty Considine. I don't think that Patty Con- that uh, Viserys Targaryen will make it through the end of this season. So um, maybe Patty Considine will get some Emmy consideration here because this is probably a one-off performance for him. Just, just something to, you know, something to shout out there. Uh, props to Patty Considine for a really kind of interesting, nuanced uh, performance as a as a Game of Thrones world universe character that we hadn't seen before. Someone who isn't really awful is pretty decent, but also just kind of like tortured. I guess it's a little bit like Ned Stark, who was also kind of tortured, and you know, obviously he didn't want to become a hand of the king, but. And he just kind of makes bad move after bad move. We get a argument between him and Rhaenyra, who Rhaenyra is pissed about having Jason Lannister court her and thinks, oh, your father set it up. And he's like, well, you know, we got to, you have to do your royal duty. And he's like, you are my political headache. She's so pissed. She rides off on her horse. Christian Colt uh, goes after her and we get this really nice moment. So this is really good stuff here because we get finally, finally some separation of characters here. And that was when I think Game of Thrones is at at its best, where we have kind of characters separated and they can form bonds and they're separate scenes here. And that allows characters to be fleshed out rather than these crowded scenes on the council where everyone's just kind of arguing with each other and being passive aggressive and there's more meaning to it. It just, while that's good stuff too, Game of Thrones was often at its best where it had characters kind of venturing through Westeros and forming bonds with each other. One of the great bonds that I can think of is um, Brienne of Tarth and Jamie Lannister, who on their quest back to King's Landing ended up forming a bond with each other. And there ended up being kind of a bit of a sea change for Jamie, who was kind of awful at first, but then wasn't quite redeemed. But we just looked at him in a different light. He was a little bit more of a sympathetic character. Another great bond, of course, is Arya Stark and the Hound, who were venturing through Westeros as well. Or maybe when Jon Snow and Samwell Tarly of the Night's Watch and other members of the Night's Watch were going through North the Wall. Those were really, that was really good stuff too. I I like it when the show ventures outside of the cities because there's a lot of good, a lot of good stuff to be formed there. Um, So when we have Rhaenyra and Christian Cole, he also says like, you know, I had no hope. You gave me more than I ever would have considered. You helped me achieve my dream of being a member of the King's Guard. This is this is awesome. Meanwhile, we have Viserys back now after a day of uh, hunting or a day of just hanging out outside and it's nighttime now and <laughs> Jason Lannister presents him with what appears to be a spear of some kind and he's like, this guy is just like, the cockiest dude ever. Oh my gosh. I have to suffer through another one of these things. This is just awful. We get another good moment where Otto Hightower, 
recommends to Viserys that Rhaenyra marry his new son in the tradition of the old Targaryens. And then there's like a long pause there. And Viserys actually just chuckles like, dude, are you serious? Great acting of both uh, uh, Reezy Fonz and Patty Considine of just the most ridiculousness of that moment of Rhaenyra marrying a two-year-old. <laughs> and then we see kind of the suffering of Viserys going on. He's drinking cup after cup after cup of wine. He probably has some physical pain, so he's ailing that. But also he just says, I'm so sick of this effing politicking. I just don't want to do any of this. I just want to hunt. I just want to escape. And this just shows the further anguish of him. And I, I, it's impossible to adore. We have to just say how well fleshed out these characters are already. What a good job this show is doing of, flesh, of fleshing out these characters so far, at least in terms of Rhaenyra, who is a person who just wants to break free of the expectations of being in royalty. And Viserys, who wants to maintain what was part of his legacy, but it's just killing him in the process. It is just destroying him both physically and mentally. But he's driven not just by the legacy of his, uh, of King Jaehaerys before him, but also the idea of his obsession of this prophecy of a song of ice and fire. We get a further scene where he's at a bonfire and it was pointed out that a lot of the scenes were like people reminisce about visions and ideas and regrets. They always take place in front of, front of fires. I think we saw some other scenes where they're down in the area where uh, the fossilized head, the skull of Valerian, the dread, the large dragon is surrounded by flames. And uh, the description of a song of ice and fire happened uh, to Rhaenyra happened there. Uh, and he describes, what if I'm wrong? I appointed Rhaenyra the successor, uh, my heir. And what if I'm wrong? He says it to I Alison Hightower. This is Viserys, by the way. And she's like trying to comfort him. But just the fact that he has those doubts, I think that there's quite a bit of meaning to that. Because that could be setting things up going forward that he named Rhaenyra successor, but... Maybe it should be Aegon. Maybe he is the prince who was promised. I don't know. This is what I was obsessed with. I, you know, my obsession of this prophecy drove my my wife to death by constantly giving birth, and it's driving me mad. My health is failing, so I don't know. I have my doubts, but ultimately, it's said that it's the right. She says it's the right decision to name Rhaenyra heir. Anyway, that'll have more meaning going forward because I think that um, I'm not, now I have not read the book that this is based on, but I do know that in the broad strokes, this is the Dance of Dragons where it's all about who is considered the rightful king or queen in this case. And we have Aegon, the son of Viserys, or Rhaenyra, who was named heir, and the daughter, the firstborn of Viserys, who he named as heir. And that will be, or maybe it could be uh, even Damon, who is his younger brother, but a kind of a bit of a loose cannon going forward. And this is the uh, 
kind of a, a civil war possibly going forward. Now, we uh, go back to the woods where Christian Cole and Rhaenyra are, are at a campfire. And uh, we get some more symbolism here in that they're just having a good time. And then a wild boar happens to attack Christian Cole and knock him off his feet and go on top of Rhaenyra. And Christian stabs it, but then Rhaenyra snaps. And all the frustration of her being kind of like never viewed as just like a person in her father's eyes, but just a, a person for courting and, uh, you know, almost like property for to not sell, but to court off to further alliances and not like a human being and a person that he would tutor, teach the ways of being king as she has been named heir. And all of her built up frustration, pent up frustration, she takes out on this board, just stabbing it to death. There's blood all over her face. It really kind of juxtaposition, uh, there's like a juxtaposition between Viserys, who is just drowning his sor- sorrows, kind of just looks weak and defeated and she and Rhaenyra meanwhile is covered in blood and is defeating a boar successfully hunting something while Viserys hasn't successfully hunted anything yet in fact we cut to later where they ended up not finding a white heart but like just a regular stag who's a big guy but they're capturing it for him on ropes and the whole thing just looks kind of pathetic with Viserys taking the spear that Jason Lannister gave him and stabbing it. He can't even hit the heart right away. He has to have his uh, Westerling, Commander Westerling, say, a little bit to the left, Your Grace, a little bit to the left. And then he has to take two stabs at it. And afterwards, Viserys just looks tired. He's wearing gloves because, like, his fingers are all, his fingers are getting messed up because of the, the decay on his body. Meanwhile, Rhaenyra is successfully hunted a boar, and there's this excellent scene where she comes back, her face battered in blood, and brings a boar back. And everyone just gets up and looks at her like, whoa, uh, who, what is going on here? Everyone kind of just gives her a look. And while we never have, maybe it would have been nice to have a little bit of dialogue there. That's what I was thinking, basically. A lot of what happens in this show is done without dialogue. Uh, like some scenes, there are some scenes that just are going on with that. And a lot of what's said is said without dialogue. I would have enjoyed maybe a little bit of dialogue, not necessarily like a quippy one liner, but maybe just something like, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it would be hard to say. Maybe that was the right writing choice. (laughs) Also, Rhaenyra is, happens to see, this is another great scene where she happens to see uh, blood on her face, looking out over the trees on a cliff. She happens to see a white heart and they're thinking of hunting it. But instead she's like, no, let it go. The fact that she found a white heart, there's a lot of symbolism there. So we'll see how that works out going forward. Um, then we get finally like a scene between Viserys and Millie Alcock that was pretty good um, at the advice of Allison Hightower. Viserys just says to Rhaenyra, I understand it is a royal duty, but if you do it, like, please do it. But if you do it, at least do it as I did and do it with someone who makes you happy. And then Rhaenyra gives a smile. I'm not sure if it's a genuine smile or not. We don't know. But either way, it was great acting for Millie Alcock. I want to talk about Millie Alcock for a second. She is so good in this role. 
uh, the facial expressions that she communicates in her moments of happiness. And then the moments of unhappiness, she's just able to emote a lot with just her face. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do in acting. And the moments where she actually does speak, she's able to just say like, oh, I'm just being sold off and able to express her disgust. And she's doing action scenes where she is stabbing a boar to death in pent up anger and rage. Millie Alcock is doing a lot here. And uh, unfortunately, I don't, she is going to be not in the show anymore. Not that Rhaenyra Targaryen is going to not be in the show, but there's a time jump where the actress Emma Darcy will be taking over for Millie Alcock. And it, it is an interesting choice a little bit. I think Emma Darcy, I believe, I'm looking it up right now. Emma Darcy is 30 years old. Millie Alcock is 22. <sighs> That's not much of an age difference. That's an eight-year age difference. Could they just maybe have stuck with Millie Alcock and made her look a little bit older? going forward i'm not really sure but casting directors thought and uh, the showrunners thought that that was necessary uh they do know more than we do so we'll find out going forward but man her performance is so fantastic that it will be hard to say goodbye to her going forward and so this is kind of a another one-off so two great one-offs so again maybe emmy consideration for millie alcock going forward as well i don't know but I hope they go on to big things. Patty Considine's already a big actor. He'll he'll do big things going forward. But I hope Millie Alcock does big things going forward too. Just looking up. She actually already has done quite a bit already. So I'm sure she'll be going even further after this. Great performance by Millie Alcock. Great one-off performance on this show, House of the Dragon. Okay. I've been going on for a long time here now. It's fine. It's time we get to the end of this episode where were bookended by action set pieces. So we get our first big one here. But before that, we go to the Stepstones and we finally find out, like, we have a conversation about how things are going. And we can see that it is not going well. Corliss Valerian and his brother, uh, Vayman Valeri- uh, Valerian, are both frustrated. They're frustrated with the state of the war. They need ships coming in, but they're not coming in on time. They haven't gotten any aid from, from King's Landing. And uh, they, they just don't know what to do because they keep escaping to the caves and they have those archers with the high ground. And apparently Damon Targaryen is not helping out either. We're also introduced to uh, Lenor, uh Valerian, who is the son of Corlys and Rhaenys. Targaryen, who is the queen who never was, uh, who was passed up for the queen, of course. And Lenor Valerian is part Targaryen. So we'll get into that. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit further going forward. So then we see Damon fly down on his dragon. And they're like, this guy is messing us up. And then he shows up and a messenger arrives and th- this was a big moment. I mean, what Matt Smith has done with this. He, first of all, Damon is a way more complicated character. And this goes back to my point of he hasn't appeared in a lot of episodes much. He just has these moments where he pops in. And when he does pop in, boy, does he pop. It, it very much is like the writing style of The Dark Knight. 
the, or the writing choice of the Dark Knight where they kind of use like that Joker fizzle where he pops in. There's not in it. He's not in it every scene. He's not in it a lot. But when he's in it, he stands out. So here, he doesn't have any lines of dialogue. He just walks in with an intensity. It's a very physical performance. Has the messenger show up. It's, what, like two or three years too late when he gets a message from Viserys who says, I'll be sending some stuff. And it's just like, it's too little, too late. It's not really much help. And just ends up beating the dude. And by the way, it's an interesting choice. I thought something was wrong with my my AirPods when I was watching this on my iPhone, when the audio kind of drowns out and it goes into like this muted effect. Interesting, but I, I, I'm i not really sure what the choice there was with that, but I, I suppose it was effective. He starts beating the guy out of frustration. Uh, they say they need to use kind of like a human, human bait and it's not said on screen. Again, they, they do this uh, writing choice where they skip some things I suppose the reason I suppose the reason for that is they know the trap of getting in fantasy shows or sci-fi shows and doing exposition heavy scenes where you describe a lot and again this show is pretty light on exposition which is a good thing. Some of the complaints I've heard are that there's not enough exposition and maybe that's true. I, I now when we when we cut to the next scene where we find Damon rowing and then kind of offering himself up to the crab feeder as a surrender, waving the white flag of, I guess, suing for peace. I generally knew what they were doing. I, or I didn't know completely what they were doing. I thought maybe Damon was going in, but I, they, they hatched a plan. And I, I think there's two reasons for that. They want to skip exposition. And it probably won't be the most interesting scene in the world. And they also want the element of surprise, I think. Basically, they want things to be assumed. So we have this excellent action set piece where Damon offers up his sword, Dark Sister. <laughs> the crab feeder comes out. You see that great little scene where you see the crab feeder kind of like looking. You see his eyes surveying the sky for dragons. And his archers are knocking their arrows, ready to fire. And one of his men comes up and he says, it's okay, just come up there. And then he drops the sword and takes out a dagger, stabs a dude, and then just slashes the dude up. And now Damon's going full on sprint. He is blitzing, taking out dudes. And this is the first time we've seen Damon or really anyone for that matter in action. And holy moly, this dude can fight. I, I had no idea that Matt Smith, who can can do these action set pieces, I think there's a great stunt actor as well. But he's going through and uh, dodging arrows, and it, it, it's just pretty awesome. It's quite well directed, quite well directed by Greg Utanis. But it's like a full-on like kamikaze style suicide sprint. Damon doesn't care whether he lives or dies. I guess I'm not one to break down the logic of certain scenes. I will say. Uh, some people have picked apart and said, well, I don't know how they pulled off the plan. Where's the coordination? There's just a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And I don't know. How did you survive all those arrows? And it's like, it's a TV show. It's a TV show. We have to suspend our belief a little bit. I don't think that this was such, there was any egregious errors in logic or writing here to draw my ire. I was pretty amazed at what I was watching. 
it does have you process a lot of information all at once. I'll get into that in a second. So we see Damon get hit by a couple arrows eventually. I think three. And he's just surrounded by all army of the Triarchy. And then you see kind of in the distance through the smoke, Corliss and the mess of the members of uh, that, uh, the, the, the opposing army, the Sea Snake and his soldiers show up. And then we see a blast of fire. We know that, oh, it's on. This was a decoy plot all along. This is what they were talking about. This is the plan hatched out. By the way, they kind of did hash it out there. I don't know that more exposition uh, was needed. We see Damon blown back, and then we get a full-on battle scene, like really awesome scenes, and we see Sea Smoke, the dragon that Laner Valerian had could ride. And at first I was like, wait, that dude can ride a dragon? And then I was like, oh, that makes sense because his mother is a Targaryen. Yes, of course. Uh, and we see these really cool scenes where he's on the cl- where the sea smoke is on the cliffs, breathing fire. And this is it. This is what we've been, you know, this is what they've been building for. And the, one of the things I'd like to say about the action scenes and the action set pieces in Game of Thrones is that when they do are added, they just the sheer ferocity of them, they really do pop because a lot of the show is not punctuated by small action sequences and there's not a lot of music carrying forward. Um, the show doesn't have, it usually has a lot of times more of a subdued tone. So when the action scenes do come out, they really, really pop. And this is a case of that. And they seem to be successful in the battle. There's even a scene where the dragon picks up a couple guys and just kind of throws them through the air. And then we get Laner going, woo! And that, 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 that was cool. When I saw that, I was like, that was the first time I like saw someone riding a dragon kind of enjoying themselves. And I was like, they kind of hit the nail on the head there because you, you would think that riding a dragon through the sky, as long as you're used to it, it'd be pretty fun, right? It'd be pretty fun. So again, th- 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 that's just another element of um, letting loose and just not feeling as uh, tightly wound. This is people, again, showing people acting like humans is one of the most important things in fantasy and sci-fi. You can't be bogged down in your self-seriousness. We see Damon enter the cave, and we don't even see it. We see him come out with half of a torso and a head, and I didn't know what it was at first, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is the crab feeder, and his face is covered in blood. Another interesting choice. A lot of stuff happening off screen there. I, I, I suppose, again, the reason that they're doing that is they want shock they want you to be kind of unsure of what you're seeing at first and then they want it to be a shocking moment this is kind of adhering to the tv structure of it seems at the every at at the end of every episode you kind of need a mic drop moment so mic drop moment in episode one rhaenyra being named heir to the throne mic drop moment in episode two viserys announcing that he's going to marry allison hightower mic drop moment in episode three the fact that the crab feeder's dead. And this guy who I thought was going to play a bigger part <laughs> is apparently dead now. I've heard some a little bit disappointment because this guy, he kind of looks cool and we want to see his backstory, but uh, he served as a device for a few episodes. It's, uh, yeah, if you're angry at that, come on, it's not nearly as bad as, uh, I don't think it's even bad, but it's not nearly as you know bad as like, the extent they went through the Night King where they spent 
eight seasons building that guy up as an ultimate big bad. And then he was just dead. And then we were just done with it. And (laughs) this is fine. This is fine. If he wanted, he was the device of a set piece and uh, a plot point. Now Damon is going to be covered in glory because he won a war. So I thought it was a pretty cool set piece. That was the punctuation mark at the end of a, Probably my favorite episode yet. I will say this is probably my favorite episode so far. Not just because it had an excellent action set piece, just because I think that this show is at its best when it expands and contracts in certain ways. It ebbs and flows. And what I mean by that is that it shows people having much more personal conversations with each other. And kind of, they do that when they kind of venture out into another location. So we're surrounded by cool nature and it shows people, and that's how you do good character building. We we kind of figure out what a person is thinking. And we saw that with both Viserys and uh, Rhaenyra within this episode. But also, we had an excellent physical performance from Damon, who, while he had dialogue in the beginning saying, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to come after you, crab feeder. Uh, at the end, he doesn't utter a line of dialogue and just gets done what he needs to get done. It was pretty dope. Those are my thoughts on the episode. I think it's a great episode going forward. And after watching this excellent set piece, I'm kind of, I'm really, I, I cannot wait to see what happens going forward from here. This really changes things for Damon a bit, I think. I don't know. This has been another episode of Too Much to Watch. I'll be diving into episode four on the next episode, and I'll probably be giving some more coverage to the Rings of Power going forward. In addition to that, we have another big show coming out, Andor, which is a new Star Wars series. (laughs) The fact that we have three prime franchises on simultaneously is remarkable. It's Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, and Star Wars all on and by the way not none of them in movie form right now they're all on tv that says it all right there too much to watch thanks for listening guys i'll catch you all next time take it easy